well, how are we going to be focused? What little things are we going to do in training to make sure that we're focused? How are we going to hold each, how are we going to help each other be focused? You can go from granular detail through to broader definitions of focus. Strong. Well, strong to an individual can be strong in the air, strong in a challenge, through to mentally strong, through to being strong coming back from injury, being strong with determination in the gym. You know, I, I think these action words, these adjectives are wonderful ways to break down the kind of granular behaviors that we all want to engage in. And we can have just three and build from there. And I think that that can we can start to have great conversations in pods, in pairs, peer to peer learning, coaches with players, coaches with the support staff, just around three words. I think that's a powerful place to be. Hello and welcome back to the Supporting Champions podcast. I'm Steve Ingham and if this is your first time tuning in then you're in for a treat. This is where we explore the often invisible aspects of achieving greatness and aspiring to perform whether in sport, business or life in general. We're not just about the headlines here, we're about the fine print, the strategies, the setbacks and the comebacks that make the journey worthwhile and we talk to experts from various fields, from coaches and scientists to leaders and, of course, performers. Those people who are out there trying. So it's not just about the performers. These are also about the people behind the scenes, the ones who are making champions what they are. This podcast isn't just for the elites or the top professionals. It's for anyone who believes in pushing their own boundaries, who believes in the power of progress over perfection. It's for anyone who's committed to improving to learning and to taking action. Whether you're a student, a professional or someone simply interested in personal growth, there's something here for you. So if you're ready to dig deeper and apply some real world insights to your own life, you're in the right place. The Supporting Champions podcast is sponsored by Athlete Now, a new venture I'm involved in. Now, Athlete Now is a new platform that's revolutionizing the connection between athletes and sports performance practitioners. We know that in the world of sports, the pursuit of peak performance is a constant journey and it can often feel like a bit of a solo mission. And nowadays, with the high tech landscape of wearables, nutrition, mental training, Navigating your path to excellence might seem overwhelming. An athlete now aims to demystify this process, offering you straightforward guidance. So athlete now or theathletenow.com, what's it all about? Well, if you're an athlete, then you know that the margin between good and great is influenced often by the expertise that's guiding you. But where can you find that expertise? Athlete Now offers the answer, granting you access to a curated selection of sports science, medicine and coaching professionals. And they're not just qualified, but they're rigorously vetted so that you can search by experience, specialism, location or accreditation to suit your needs. And Athlete Now is emerging as the solution for athletes seeking to push their limits and get the support they need. For the professional practitioners listening in, Athlete Now solves the age-old question, how do you stand out in a sea of talent? And the platform not only showcases your skills, but connects you directly with those who need them most. So whether you're a nutritionist whose strategies are fueling the champions, or a psychologist whose techniques are helping athletes to cope, strive and perform, 
Athlete Now is your stage. For athletes, the platform is free, and for practitioners, you can sign up half price for this first year. Only £10 for the foundation tier, which will allow you to get your profile started, or upgrade for the professional tier, where you can get advanced features such as the jobs boards, community access, and practice guides. And that's just for £50 per year. So Athlete Now is more than just a directory. It's a community committed to excellence, ensuring athletes and sports professionals are perfectly paired to help support each other's ambitions together. So whether you're striving to compete or building a career, helping others do so, Athlete Now is really where it's at. So take a look at theathletenow.com. Today's episode is a real treat for anyone who's interested in the psychology of team dynamics and performance. Our guest is Dan Abrahams, a renowned sports psychologist and host of the Sports Psych podcast. And his insights into team behavior are not just thought-provoking, but immensely practical. Dan is someone whose work I followed closely over the years, especially his perspective on team dynamics. Whether you're a coach, an athlete, or a leader in any capacity, understanding the psychological elements that make a team tick is crucial. And that's exactly what we're going to explore today. We'll be discussing the environments that foster psychological development, the balance between focusing on individual players versus the team as a whole, and even the challenges that come with managing different personalities within a team setting. We'll also be delving into tactical aspects like how to close out a performance when you're winning or adapt when you're behind. So if you're looking to deepen your understanding of what makes a team successful, both mentally and strategically, you won't want to miss this conversation. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dan. Uh, an absolute privilege to have you on. Uh, we've been, I guess, living this parallel universe for a, li- for a little while, haven't we? And, and I've really enjoyed connecting recently with you. But um, I want to get into today about all things sports psych. So what better person to have on than, than your good self, the, the host of the acclaimed sports psych podcast. So how are you, Dan? Hey. All the better for um, having the opportunity to speak with you. As, as to say, just to mirror what you said, I mean, we've been um, running our, our, our podcast probably for a similar amount of time and um, we've communicated before, but it's just so so awesome to be inv- invited onto your show. I'm a, a long, long-term long listener. Um, I love um, I love every podcast that you do. So to get the opportunity to be here and um, shoot shoot some stuff and go back and forth and 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 see 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 where our philosophies and beliefs and ideas lie, awesome! Thank you so much for you, for the invite. No, likewise. And I always think that actually there's there's quite a nice little sort of co-supporting sort of feel yeah. to people who put stuff out onto audio. Um, before we get into sort of the sports psych stuff. Can I just ask you how how have you found it over the years? How have you uh, benefited from it? Is it a labour of love for you? What's your, maybe maybe we can just have a little bit of a, a co support here just about um, about your podcast experience. The best things I've ever done in my career, Steve. I don't know how if you'd be as hyperbole about your experiences, but. I've loved every second. I started just after I left England rugby back in, uh, I want to say September 2008. 
2018 and uh, we kicked off with three episodes and um really mine has shaped itself over the years to predominantly not only not exclusively but predominantly speak to academics from the world of sports psychology i still sometimes have some episodes where i speak to coaches and speak to to, to participants competitors but by and large to, to to academics and 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 that's a personal bias uh and also uh, sort of looking at the marketplace and uh, aligning it in a certain direction it's a personal bias because i left academia many many years ago after i feel in my qualifications i always wanted to be a sports psychology consultant so i really wanted to connect back up with the academic world because it's just brilliant people there you know, in the world of sports psychology, just doing amazing research. And some of that research just doesn't see, see the light of day, as you as you know and you can appreciate. So I've really got to get people on, talking about their brilliant research, breaking this down for coaches, breaking this down for participants. And to be honest with you, in a slightly selfish way, helping me, you know, yeah, understand yeah. this stuff. Because when you leave academia, you do, when you, you, when you read academic papers, you get, you slip away from that language, um, into probably more simplistic tones. So, um, that's really what we do on the sports site show. And it's, so it's number one, very selfishly, I'm going to say it's number one, a learning experience, uh, for me. Number two, uh, I'd like to think it's a generous offer towards the sports psychology community to put it out, their ideas and, and, and the discipline itself out there uh, into the world. I'm sure there's more reasons um, and, and advantages and benefits to, to doing it than that. But those would be the main ones. So I've loved every second of it. I think it's helped me become a more informed practitioner, a more open minded practitioner. Um, a more humble practitioner, to be honest, Steve, because I, I, if I was to reflect back, last thing to say here, if I was to reflect back slightly on my early career, I kind of thought I knew it all, you know. Who didn't? And, uh, Who didn't, eh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I, I, you know, I, all I can say is speak for myself, and I probably thought I did. So now I realise, you know, it's that almost cliche to say it. I kind of know nothing, you know, I, 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 I'm in my mid forties on that journey to try and know as much as I can. I'm probably not going to get past 20, 25% of where I should. So it's been awesome. What about yourself? Well, I'm in a similar way, really, in the sense mm. that actually one of the things of moving out into the sort of wild west of, of working for yourself, that you lose probably a lot of the direct camaraderie of network and conversations in the corridors and so it's sort of artificially manufacturing that a little bit but ultimately sort of cpd in the sense of me thinking about okay well who would i love to have a conversation with and and being able to sort of go off and have permission to have that in a, almost like a, a semi-public way but um i think for for me uh a lot of the the best development hasn't been sat listening to a lecture or at a conference, that formal sort of training. It's been sort of coffee-based conversations. And I suppose that's what I'm trying to conjure, probably in a different way in the sense that my my bias is probably for variety. So rather than just the same thing, which I think you serve the sports site community so, so well, that, that's depth there. 
and, and I, I probably bring a bit of bre- breadth of, right, let's get a jet fighter pilot on. <laughs> and, um, and, and that's my curiosity of thinking, what, what does that world look like that, that I could beg, borrow, and steal some ideas from for my, for my, own, my own thought? Or, or just like, that'd be interesting. <laughs> and I, I think that's where our podcasts complement uh, each other in terms of, as you said, arguably my depth, although yours goes in very deep as well, but your breadth is in your breadth of population. Um, that's not to suggest that I'm not striving to get a breadth of com- population. I suppose I've just honed in on understandably the, 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 the sports yeah. psych side of things. But what I love about we're going to have a love in here, Steve. What I love about yes. what you you're the do. best, Dan. You're, no, you're the best. <laughs> you're amazing. Um, <laughs> what, what I love about what you do is, is, and I suppose I love it because it's through my own biased lens, because I think I try to host like this. And I always think I, I talk far, far too much. And I, I really do think so, just because I'm so passionate about what I what I do and, and, and this subject area is that you have a conversation. As you said, it's a far side chat. It's a conversation. It's not to suggest there's not great podcasts out there where hosts aren't just firing question after question. And the advantage of that is that, you know, that that kind of podcast, you're getting more of the guest, which is absolutely vital. And as I said, I probably need to tighten up as a host from that perspective. But I want to have a conversation. I want to have a chat. I, I want to add my thoughts as you know somebody in front of me is unloading their thoughts because I'm just curious as to what their response is you know and so that's what I love about yours is you're always giving some value judgment from your own uh, real world experience which I think is vital for anybody listening in yeah I'd I'd probably say don't do that and as in you get don't don't hold back too much because Mm. If I'm listening to your podcast, I want to know what you think too. Okay. So that there's that there's that sort of bounce. Um the the transactional interviewer mm. of of getting the best out of somebody is of, of course that's going to be important. But um yeah, I, I would when I'm tuning to you, I want to know what you think too on that subject. So um Maybe I'm just playing out my biases there. Hey, look, we can edit all of this out, can't we? Because we know we've got a little secret handshake of editing, can't we? We can sort of mix and match. I never said that. You never said that. We can just uh, just edit it afterwards, eh? Well, look, so let's dive in. Let's get get in there. But I think probably before we get into it, because I don't know whether the Venn diagram um, of our listenership, I don't know how, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know whether people listen to the Supporting Champions podcast, listen to Sports Psych. I'm sure they will uh, tune in now. But for those that don't, could you just give me that nice, hearty introduction to your good self? Um, So I am a former professional golfer, failed miserably. Um, I probably do today what I do as a sports psychologist because of my experiences as a golfer. I picked up uh, my first sports psychology. I put sports psychology in inverted commas because it was the inner game of tennis, which I suppose purists would say, well, it's not a sports psychology book, but it really is. 
Um, I picked up Timothy Galway's in the game of tennis at the age of 15 years old, probably when I should be, should have been chasing girls. I was chasing knowledge about sports psychology. <laughs> and, um, so that, that built from there because I was ambitious to become the best golfer I could be. I wanted to be a pro golfer. I announced to my parents at 18 when I left school with appalling A levels that I was going to, 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 uh, be the best golfer in the world and then pretty quickly realized I wasn't going to quite challenge with Tiger Woods uh, I was quite, quite some distance from that so I, I went into my local pro shop uh, became a PGA professional did all my exams so I have a background of playing pro golf albeit to a stunningly average level um, seeing sports psychologists at that time my next book I read was Dr. Bob Rattelis, Golf is Not a Game of Perfect. And I think two seminal books in sports psychology would be In a Game of Tennis and Golf is Not a Game of Perfect. Started to coach the game. And the wonderful thing about golf coaching is you are doing it all day, every day. I mean, literally, I coached at a range and it was 40 hours of lessons a week, um, which I dialed down as I decided to, to, to take up that interest in psychology. And I started to do a, a degree in psychology as I was coaching golf. So uh, it built from there. And then I, I did my master's degree and really got to a point, okay, what, what do I do? And I left the golf behind because I really wanted to work across sports and potentially in some other domains as well. I wanted to work across sports. Um, so I became a sports psychologist. I don't know. I, I, I really started working in this area. The foundations were 2005, 2006. I became HCPC registered a few years later. So, so sort of fully qualified and registered in that respect after some supervision. And, um, that's what I've been doing ever, ever, ever since. And, I've been proud to hold some positions in British sport that are, are, are reasonably substantial. Lead psychologist for England golf, lead psychologist for England rugby, working with Eddie Jones going to the last World Cup. I've held contracts at probably around half a dozen Premier League clubs. I would always say I've probably specialised in golf and football, soccer, if you like. But I've worked across all sports over the years. And right now I find myself... Uh, working with a number of uh, organizations, teams, individuals, probably most notably Aston Martin Formula One and uh, Feyenoord football in the Ever Dutch Eredivisie. Um, and uh, I host the, the, the sports site show. I've written four books, Soccer Tough, Soccer Tough 2, Soccer Brain, Golf Tough. And I think that just about brings us up to speed. Fantastic. Well, an incredible career. Um that that um, failed athlete, failed performer kind of status as the sort of standard uh, sports scientist. Uh, oh, oh yes, <laughs> and I'd include I'd include all the way up to sort of Olympian in, in that. I, you know, a lot of a lot of people who I I know have achieved at the top end who see their Olympic status. Oh, I didn't medal, so or I didn't get a gold medal as a failure, which is an interesting concept in itself but do you think that pro experience enriched your um absorption of this topic of sports psychology but also how how you are as a practitioner too so um i think even though as a practitioner you'd always say that um your work is based on 
largely empirical evidence so much of what you do is going to be experiential and it's not just experiential from the experiences you've had throughout your sports psychology career it's also um the experiences you've had uh, throughout your playing career and through your coaching career i mean i, I would actually almost skip along a bit and say it was my coaching experience right that has was really the foundation for everything that I do now. I really, I mean, I had some wonderful experiences in my qualifications and I've had some wonderful supervisors and mentors. However, I would always say that, you know, standing at the golf club on the range or standing at the driving range when I worked at the driving range, you know, just having different people from different cross sections of society having uh, the, a few individuals in the morning and then suddenly a group of six-year-olds in the afternoon. I, I once even conducted a, a, an eight-year-old's birthday party. It was a golf birthday party, you know, and I, I, I didn't dress up as a clown or anything, but I had to entertain eight-year-olds at this birthday party. Uh, experiences like those have really shaped I suppose the psychosocial lens of the world that I, uh, what I have now. And it's not to suggest I step into Aston Martin or Final that I start, you know, I'm not suggesting the, the, the experience I had with eight year old kids is, is the prime mediator, but just being able to manage yourself as you, um, engage. As I say, that cross-section of society, the lawyer one minute, the housewife the next minute, the the older golfer, the excellent young player, just a, a raft, a range of abilities, ages, levels, cross-section of society. That's been hugely – That I think that's the number one most influential. Number two qualifications, probably, probably then number three playing uh, career because I'm always mindful of – Get out of my own head there. That's what I experienced, but it's very important for me to be as neutral as I can possibly be, even though I don't think that's completely possible. Mm. That, that's, that's interesting. So that that cross-sectional experience, mm. um, what do you think that that brings you? I I sense that there is um well, yeah, I'll leave it I'll leave that as a, as the question. What what does that bring to your practice or your engagement with other humans that that you feel is advantageous? Patience and the tolerance for individual yeah, okay. differences yeah, right. more than anything else, which backs up, you know, we've spoken in the past, you and I about, you know, personality science. In fact, we've exchanged some notes and um, it's, it's, it's an area that's vast and broad and extraordinarily complex. And I'm not suggesting for, for one second that coaches dive into personality science, but I, it certainly is a, as a sports psychology practitioner, it is of real interest to me, the complexity of the human and, and actually that there are broad tendencies that we have. Um, but those broad tendencies are, 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 are still dis displayed through individuality. And so definitely, I, I, I think my experiences as a, as, as a, a coaching professional dealing with different personalities as the, as your lesson day unfolds, um, the, the science backs up individual differences. It, and I think it helps you appreciate them it helps you be more tolerant and patient around them and that's not to say one is always tolerant and patient of other people because we're all human beings but um i i i i, I think that would be the number one thing is just dealing with individuals 
Mm. It's interesting because as you get more experienced, you are looking for a few shortcuts. You are looking for that sort of perceptive insight, but potentially you need, I, th I think you need a little bit of capacity to be able to do that. So you're looking for a few shortcuts of, yeah, I've, I've got the experience of doing this before, or I've got a heuristic for this particular scenario, which then means you're sort of prejudging it. I've seen this before, as opposed to that curiosity of what am I going to encounter? Where is this going to go? Uh, this could be completely novel uh, as an experience and keeping that at the forefront of your engagement with somebody. It's interesting. It's interesting dynamic as you get more experience. You have to, you have to still s s consider each case on its, on its merits. Really interesting point. And I think the word I really picked up on there is heuristic, because again, I, if I was to return to the, the science of personality, and I can only give you my understanding, you know, if, if, if we, if we suggest that the science demonstrates typical tendencies and those typical tendencies, most characteristics load onto five traits. Spelling out ocean, openness, conscientiousness, agreeableness, uh, sorry, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not suggesting coaches need to know this. However, you know, if one does pick up a book that gives reasonably good descriptions of the kind of facets that underpin those traits, then you do start to see patterns. So I, I completely agree with you. When you take an interest, if you read a couple of books on personality science and you just take a few notes and you start to think, okay, right, ocean, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, take the, take the trait of agreeableness. You'll notice within, and you know, I, I try to search for this and scan for this disagreeable behavior for instance you know moments where people are disagreeable and by and large personality is that classic u-shape that bell shape where most people lie in the middle but you've got those outliers you know you might have those people those players in the team for instance who really have a tendency to be disagreeable and and so what I believe as a psychologist, what I think I know as a psychologist is I would say, well, okay, the thoughts, emotions and feelings and sensations that they're experiencing are happening to them. And the way they play out is they demonstrate that in in terms of a personality. So that person is is being disagreeable. It's not necessarily their fault. It's how they get along and get ahead, essentially. So again, I come back to, well, that gives me a patience and a tolerance for that. Okay, this person tends to be disagreeable. That's my little heuristic there taken from ocean. Okay, how can I deal with this? Maybe I'm going to actually take a breath if this person says something that I don't necessarily like that might make me want to snap back. You know, maybe I'm going to be more curious about what this person is saying because this person really is countering what I believe and what I'm trying to teach this person. You know, maybe it might be something I'm talking about with mental skills and they go, no way I disagree with that. That's a load of rubbish. That doesn't work for me. Okay. Well, tell me about that. Talk, talk to me. What, what might work for you? And actually, if you, that, that classic listening, expressing empathy, asking open questions, that sort of motivational interviewing stuff. Okay, now I'm starting to uncover that this person is disagreeable externally towards me in their environment, but there's ways to unpeel that where I can get to know this person and deal with that sense of disagreeableness that they have. Just because they're like that 
doesn't mean I can't help them. It doesn't mean I can't manage who they are in order or manage myself around who they are in order to find solutions here for them and for me with them. And, and would you, I mean, obviously it's going to be contextual and what you're feeling and sensing in the time, yes. but yeah. would you be dialing up your disagreeableness or your task focus? Would you start sort of going toe to toe with uh, let's get it done. Let's, you know, let's cut the crap. I'm going to be as candid as you actually need, or would you reflect the the opposite potentially because they might need a little bit more of that in their life? Really good question, and I think that as, as you said, I mean to, to 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 reflect what you said, context is going to matter. I would say in my role as a sports psychologist, by and large, I'm going to listen, empathise, and try to unpack um, what where this person is is coming from. Um, However, again, context, there might be a sense of urgency here. There might be a sense of actually, I think what I'm offering here, you know, if m- maybe my relationship with that person has deepened over time, or maybe I just am in a position at a club where I don't want to use the word power, but, you know, I've been a part of the fabric of the club for quite some time and I have trust with the coaches and trust with many players. So maybe I feel I'm in a position to be a little bit more challenging. And maybe I feel in this instance, in it's in this person's best interest for me actually to challenge what they're saying. And so, especially if we're talking about something related to mental skills or you know, psychology in general, I probably feel fairly competent to challenge that person. But again, how I challenge that person I might just do that through questioning and probing and maybe trying to break down their argument rather than just being disagreeable back at them and, and, and clashing. Uh, again, context, context matters. And of course, there are disagreeable people who quite enjoy being, uh, having others be disagreeable back at them. Yeah. Okay. Now that's where the complexity lies. You're like this, but. Who may be, who do you like me to be in this situation? Do you like that little bit of a clash? Does that actually gain some respect within your sphere of influence? You know, so yeah, think, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm fresh off watching the Mark Cavendish Netflix documentary, okay. and, and there's a little, there's a little click with a new coach on the quick step team, a guy called Vassi, mm-hmm. and who's very direct Greek approach. He's just, you know, look, this is the way it is. This is what I know about Mark Cavendish. And, and they are just disagreeable with each other. And Mark Cavendish just says, I love it. (laughs) And there's just that sense of, uh, okay, you've got a reputation for perhaps being that person who will speak out if you don't like something, not to people, please, but to, to, to tell it like it is. And, and actually this is a compliment. You don't probably, well, he's, he's sort of a transmitting. I do not necessarily need you to mollycoddle the message. I love it if it's direct and I love it if it's just get cuts to the heart of what we need. And I'm almost wondering whether in a, in a sports psych relationship, whether it's better to, to declare in that contracting space, this is what it's like working with me, Dan, uh, this is what it's, this is how I tend to approach it. Um, and, and if necessary, is it is it worth you playing that out to a to an athlete or a player and saying I, I'm like this and this is what I'm seeing f- from you? 
I think my my let me answer that first of all by saying my preferred state would be to be a bit of a chameleon in as okay. much as not a comedian but a chameleon um in as much as I'm able to flex and adapt as best as I possibly can in in correspondence with who's in front of me and so I think my preferred approach would always be uh to be somebody who might uh feel the feel the atmosphere and feel the in between the relationship the in between um in the room at that time and act accordingly um that's not to suggest that when you know interpersonally with my relationship with that person now I wouldn't be authentic I'm going to be authentic around the lunch table the dinner table I'm going to be authentic over a cup of coffee um but if I'm in a in a session um i'm i'm going to be in my role as a sports psychologist and then it's about feeling reading the situation reading the room reading the person feeling but you're not going to get right all the time now what i would know and what i would respect i can't speak for any other sports psychologist and how they would go about it what i would know and what i would respect is there's many coaches who would say well that's very nice but i hold dear i have principles about how i engage uh my athletes uh and this is my style this is my philosophy this is my style this is my coach head as i call it i have a little technique called coach head and this is how i like to engage people and that's something that they've got to got to deal with um that's a coaching decision if coaching is about constant process of decision making and you make the decision to be that kind of authentic self irrespective of who's in front of you i would say that both helps and hinders you you've given us a situation where mark cavendish for example go i love this this is great this is what i need and it suits his it suits his temperament it might that kind of approach might um alienate another athlete now it's not to suggest that coach that you're speaking of might not tone down the volume of that uh, disagreeableness with another uh cyclist maybe maybe um he would but um i think it's a very interesting and complex landscape you've always got to remember you're never going to get completely right because you're dealing with human beings and you're a human being yourself but it's a it, it's it's that craft isn't it between the science and the art to really try to tailor your communication given the the the, the situation yeah and i wonder whether that that or just that simple observation the difference between a coach as a leader as the as the key decision maker on a team versus the support person the support person is there to try and boost others and so potentially has to flex and adapt and uh, i'm always it's an interesting topic isn't it that that ultimately i want to be the best person at supporting that person in that context for what they need in that moment but i also need to be authentic to myself i need to be consistent that if I'm one way with one athlete and then I'm another way with another and people are looking across, Steve's different today than, or different in that, in that situation. It's an interesting one, isn't it? But, but potentially you're saying that for a coach or a leader or a manager, they've probably got a little bit more of a permission to choose to be the consistent side of it, but potentially less flexible side. 
consistency is impact heavily impacted by your consistency. By there, I mean the the, the players or the athletes. Um, I, I I firmly believe that it, what you were saying there made me think of a couple, uh, you know, a few things. I mean, first and foremost, the importance of co-coaching. If you're in an environment where you're you have the luxury of resources, as in other coaches, you know, I always you know the work I've done, let's say in in football, soccer, and Premier League, I've you know you detect how important over time you start to detect how important the manager or head coach if you want them to describe them like that their co-coaches are their their assistant coaches sorry and potentially making sure that you've got coaches who complement um your skills you know you don't necessarily want someone to be the same and and you do want to have the conversations where you know you're making sure those assistant coaches are doing the kind of things that maybe might not be aligned with the way you want to lead, as you say, uh, or the way you want to go about your coaching. The second thing it made me think of is I, I and not either or, but and also, I still think a manager or head coach, a leader, and still, what I'm not talking about is we go from one extreme to another, one end of the continuum to another, because as you quite rightly say, from a leadership perspective, we want a battery of consistency from a behavioral perspective. But it does make me think I can still have some flex, some shift, some adaption in accordance to what's, uh, you know, what the specific challenges of a player is or the players in front of me that I can be. Um, I try not to caricature this, but I can be what might be considered a tough-minded coach. But I can also be—I can be a tough-minded coach who demonstrates and displays empathy, for example. But that requires language skills. It doesn't necessarily require enormous emotional flexibility, but it does require language skills. So uh, I, 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 I think it's interesting, but again, it, there's no there's no sweet spot as such. It's a constant day-to-day process of decisions and experimentation and, uh, and, and noticing things going on in your environment and noticing yourself and go, where do I need to be as authentically me as possible? Where can I afford to adapt and flex a little bit? Hmm. That's quite a lot in that. I, I'm st- <laughs> no, no, no I, I love it. I mean, I'm, I'm just sort of, I've, I'm riffing a few notes here, just at a very simplistic level, that coaching team being able to offer the versatility to support a breadth of people. And I'm just thinking a sort of simple analogy of good cop, bad cop type thing of complementary um, perspectives that, that can support. I'm hearing kind of polarity management in terms of the, the idea that you could be tough, but empathic. There's the, um, the, the wonderful phrase that came out of British cycling, which was, um, I say wonderful. It's so wonderful. It's not on the tip of my tongue. Compassionate ruthlessness. That's what it was. You know, that, that sense that we can be ruthless in our decision-making, but compassionate in how we deliver that. Um, so that was, that was lovely. I'm, I love that phrase, battery of consistency. Do you, that, that's lovely. That is, can I just find out the, the origin or the meaning behind that? Because that sounds as though 
I've got a battery and I've got some capacity and I can get drained. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to provide you with some consistency if I'm on full power. But if I'm impaired and I'm fatigued or I'm under pressure, I might be uh, I might be a little bit depleted and need charging. Is, is, am I am I reading too much into that, Dan? Or is that because that's a great phrase? Yeah, no. Look, I made it up on the spot. But what I was kind of picturing was, uh, as you said, that notion of uh, having plentiful energy. I, I think it's almost the analogy is twofold from a battery perspective. It's a battery being a whole lot of and battery being energy in as much as I want to exercise a whole lot of behaviours. And if I can do that, then I'm a very adaptable coach. At the same time, using the analogy of a battery from an energy perspective is when I've depleted an energy, when my stores of sugars and glucose in my frontal lobe, if you want to see it that way, have depleted, then I don't necessarily have the room to flex and adapt. So, uh, yeah, it become, it becomes, it becomes tougher. Uh, I, I, I've read some stuff here on, uh, without getting too uh, neuroscientific here, but I read some stuff on your brake system, your willpower mm. system, your brake system is in the front part of your brain. I think it's the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex. Um, and obviously your go system, you know, your goal oriented system is also your front part of your brain. So you're kind of pressing down the accelerator and the brake at the same time. And so if you're constantly having to manage who you are throughout the day, then of course you're going to deplete your stores of, of, of energy. So I kind of see the battery from that, that perspective as well. Hmm. Um, the, Love the, that. If mm -hmm. if I can draw upon something you said there as well, you know, you were talking about, I mean, I, I wrote down uh, that compassionate ruthlessness and it was making me think of the balance between stretch and support. I mean, a lot of people talk about the balance between challenge and support, but stretch and support and how we do that as a, as a head coach, a leader or a, a coaching unit. And it comes back to that co-coaching as well in as much as, yeah, I could be the ruthless leader. And absolutely, you, you mentioned good cop, bad cop from a basic perspective. Of course, absolutely. The person um, from the helicopter viewpoint, you know, could be overlooking things and, and, and be that proverbial bad cop, if you like. And the good cop could be the one of the, the assistant coaches or one of the assistant coaches who goes in and, you know, the classic arm around, around the, the, the shoulder. But when you said compassion, ruthlessness, it, and I was thinking of stretch and support, it also made me think of the direction of stretch and support. And it's stretching the process, supporting the person, stretching the process and supporting the pro person. That feels like a wonderful juxtaposition to possess as a coaching unit, because if we can really stretch, uh, stretch somebody within their performance process, performance process, mindset process, but support them as a person as well. That it's a very basic thing to say. But if you unpack that, that's that's quite tough to do in complex. Mm, okay. Interesting. No, thanks for following up on those. That's a, that's a nice differentiation there about stretching the process because I suppose challenge or stretch, if they are synonymous or there's an, a refinement by using the word stretch versus challenge, I suppose to a certain extent, the challenge can, if it feels like I'm going to personally challenge you, that could feel quite confrontational. Whereas potentially stretching the process the tasks ahead, 
These are the steps. This is this is the road ahead. As a leader, that's a key responsibility to you anyway to to show where people are going. Um, that's a nice um, nice differentiation. So, can I just pivot there a little bit and pick up on your your work in teams? Who who is your client? And I guess that is going to depend upon the terms and conditions that you've signed up to in a contract. But principally, and I'm going to try and pin you on this a little bit, as in it's not just, oh, yeah, I'm a coach, I'm a player, I'm a CEO. But who is your, is your primary focus when you're going into a team environment? There's lots of people, lots of people you're going to need to support or please or, or develop or account to. Um, where is your focus? this in a way i think you want me to answer it <laughs> in as much as i'll tell you again no, no, no because because you want me to really pinpoint something so because you're quite right the normal stock answer is wow and it's almost like well who isn't my client it's like well, i work with this person that person i'm in the middle and i go over here and i go i, I think that's a standard answer and i think it's not a, it's not a bad it's, it's a, probably a correct answer if we want to pinpoint something, and this might be a controversial thing to say in the world of sports psychology right now, because everything is coach, 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 with and through coaches. And my answer is still going to be related to that. It's the player or the players. It just has to be because ultimately that's where the action is at. That's what these organizations exist for. So ultimately, my number one client <clears throat> is the player. And the players, as in the, the the team, how I go about doing that is a conversation to be had. I I am a practitioner who still wants to work directly with a player players because I believe, and I'm going to say this in a in in a humble way, that even though in sports psychology we love to say, wow, yeah, we, we, you know, we work with and through coaches, we work with and through the support staff, and that exists. And it's very, very important. The physio is the physio because they have expertise of physiotherapy. The doctor is the doctor because they have expertise of being a doctor of medicine. They, the coach is the coach because they have expertise of football and rugby and, and, and the activities that have to be delivered within sessions. I'm a sports psychologist. Now, I suppose that makes me, I'd like to think somewhat of an expert on human behavior within a sports setting. That's what I can offer. I can work directly with player players. I have frameworks that help me help me to help players muddle through uh, conundrums, build frameworks that help them participate, progress, and perform, engage, learn, and compete. And I can do that in a way that others in that environment can't do, just as I do not know how to put on a rugby session or a football session or teach a cyclist to get around the track quicker um, without talking about psychology. One way to put it is like this, and I said this recently on another podcast, is my dad was a London taxi driver for 50 years. If you ask him, if you ask any old Joe who's a Londoner who drives quite a bit in London, get me from, I don't know, Paddington, Westminster, they may well have an idea of how to do that. 
okay my dad has 10 20 different ways and if there's a traffic jam okay he knows the back routes by that i mean it's similar for me when i sit down with players is that i've got lots of different ways to help with lots of different mental challenges just like all sports psychs do so I'm saying this, Steve, because I, I, that's a message I want to get across is I do think in sports psychology, we need to get into, we need to be very careful with our messages. However, of course, we also work with and through coaches. So to get to players, we work with and through coaches. We work with and through uh, support staff. We might work with and through back uh, room teams as well. We're working individually. We're working from a team perspective. We're working from a systemic perspective as well. But ultimately, if you were to pin me down and say, who is your client? It has to be, unless somebody says, you're only working with the back staff. Well, that's different. But ultimately, in an organization, if I'm coming in, I want to make an impact. I have eyes for the players their behavior, their frameworks, how they're going about things. Now I go about it in a multi, I can go about it that in a multitude of ways. Perfect. Love that. Okay. Very, very clear. And, um, and I, I, I like the analogy of transporting someone from somewhere to something because that's got a, a physical feel, but it also means, I guess we're going to develop you. Um, and I suppose to riff on that metaphor, sometimes you could be transport for London and sort of shut down the tube system if you need to and and shift shift things about if you're working through coaches. That fundamentally, we're going to take a different approach to transport today because the London Marathon's on or we've got something big coming up, some, something like that. Um, does that work? I don't know if that. I just made that up. You you made up battery of consistency. I just made up no, I love shutting it. down no, the transport system for London Marathon being a, similar to a coach psychologist. <laughs> I, I love it. You're broadening broadening the analogy, and I think it works very well. And I and I think I I, I want to be clear here that you know one of the number one conversations I'm having with coaches is you're on the grass. You're on the grass, so you're going to be you. Here's the thing. Here's the difference. You're not a sports psychologist per se, but you do psychology every second of every minute of every day in your role. And there's some coaches who are just so good at doing it that you could argue they're far better than myself or my colleagues at doing the personal stuff in the style in which they do it. It's just I have the frameworks that kind of aids the, the delivery, but I can also help coaches build on their skills by having those frameworks and obviously if we start to create shared mental models within the organization if i bring into set say an organization so i i did this and i can talk you know at surface level about this you know in the fire nord uh, football organization um who compete in the dutch eredivisie league they won the eredivisie last season um, and, and one of the things that I am passionate about is trying to create shared mental models around the mental side of things, because obviously 101 with coaching at the adult elite level, the professional level, is they want to try to create shared mental models around the game model. You know, they want through, you know, visual perception, a player to be able to notice what another player is doing and, and you know, and keep their team shape and, and play together and so on and so forth. Well, I have a passion about players being able to work together around the mental side of the game. 
rather than just completely isolating things. And I work with Joe over there and Steve over there, but I don't work with David and I don't work with Brian. I actually want to find a way where we can still th- keep things individually specific, but as a, as a, at a systemic level, as a club, as a group of staff, uh, coaches, to- coaching staff and support staff in amongst the players, we can all have this shared mental model. So, for example, at Feyenoord, I use the term HPM and LPM, high performance mindset and low performance mindset, just to bring some language into the room that can, can resemble can resemble a differentiation between a good mindset and a not such a good mindset. Now we can start having great conversations around what this looks like from an individual perspective, what coaches can do to support HPM and LPM, what support staff can do, and potentially what we're doing across the system to make sure the environment supports HPM and, and, and LPM. That That is what I am very passionate about doing. And and give us a few examples of what that would look like. So mm. I suppose we've got the either or, or the compliance with high performance kind of thinking behaviors, or actually this is eroding or undermining our performance, that low performance. I'm, I'm going to just describe those as yeah. that. Yeah. Um, are you talking about here uh, dynamics in the team? that everybody is re- is responsible for accountable for and might bear consequences if it's not there of of shifting each other calling each other out encouraging and praising behaviors that amplify that is are these things like behavioral norms and psychological safety the the bonds between people that that allow people to perform good question um uh, i think that's the top of everest I think when you've got, certainly if we're talking about players, because we obviously have coaches striving to hold players accountable for certain things, but when you get players holding each other accountable, then you're talking the top of Everest. But where does that start? It's very difficult for players to hold each other accountable uh, uh, in any other way than a sort of a surface level, having a little bit of a dig at each other, for, you know, from time to time, you know, a little bit of a come on, guys, come on, come on, uh, let, let's let's get this right type thing. The kind of maybe uh, cheerleading support that you might see from a basic perspective. Now, if we start to create a language there, uh, just starting with HPM, LPM, that can be related to behaviors, which I'll come on to in a second, which you've posed. Absolutely. Now, now, if you can start to, even if you just break it down to a small group of players and just those, it might be four or five in a team. If they're holding each other accountable, then that's four, four, five players in the team. If they've got a language, you know, if you just got a, a pod of players, if you like, and within that pod, some pairs of players that hold each other accountable, peer to peer learning, if you like, from that perspective. Wow. Now we can start to make a difference. Now, in terms of what that looks like, you know, it, it could be broad. But if I was to break it down this way, and let me throw a hypothesis at you that let's say 
we're in a room, you and I, and we're addressing a, a team of players and you've got the coaching staff and you've got the support staff. And we put up on, you know, on our PowerPoint, HPM and LPM, you know, um, and, and we start to, we talk about, okay, we're going to have HPM and LPM, but we're, this is a framework. We're not going to define what that looks like. We're going to leave you to define what that looks like, but we're going to prompt you. We're going to give you, you know, we're going to give you some borders and boundaries here. This is where I love. We talk in psychology all the time about values and values are wonderful and marvelous and fantastic. And values driven organizations can be extraordinarily powerful. And you on your show have had brilliant, brilliant people who have talked about the, the, the power of values driven uh, cultures. I am interested as well in action-oriented words, Steve. I'm interested in those behaviours that you speak about. Um, uh, and because I am I suppose I'm a consultant that's very interested in starting on the pitch, the court, the course, uh, the track, and broadening things out from there. So I just wonder, if we talk about, if you and I are standing in front of a group um, of players, support and coaching staff and we give we put up on uh, a wall a whole bunch of um action oriented words adjectives if you like uh energy relentless dominant strong relaxed focus calm um joyful Think of adjectives that change nouns, right? Think of adjectives that are meaningful, essentially actions, right? Now I and I've I did I've done this and I and I did this with the club that I'm speaking about right now. Give us three words. What three adjectives, what three action words are the most meaningful to us on the field of play when we go and compete? I can guarantee you or at least I strongly believe, that those action words can uh, can be so broad in meaning, we can branch them out into everything, or they can branch out into anything. So let's imagine that uh, the team in front of us, Steve, pick energy, strong and focused, energy, strong and focused. Now, I think this is really interesting, because I think we can start to relate all behaviours towards that from important high-performance behaviours right the way through to well-being protocols and practices, mental health practices, from things around participation to things around learning to things around performance itself. And that could be with energy, strong and focused. Well, how are we going to be focused? What little things are we going to do in training to make sure that we're focused? How are we going to hold each, how are we going to help each other be focused? You can go from granular detail through to broader definitions of focus. Strong. Well, strong to an individual can be strong in the air, strong in a challenge, through to mentally strong, through to being strong coming back from injury, being strong with determination in the gym. You know, I, I think these action words, these adjectives are wonderful ways to break down the kind of granular behaviors that we all want to engage in. And we can have just three and build from there. And I think that that can we can start to have great conversations in pods, in pairs, peer to peer learning, coaches with players, coaches with support staff, just around three words. I think that's a powerful place to be. And. 
I might come back to you on this because I remember a post that you put up, which was fascinating about the response of England and the Italy football team in the European final. Um, I might come back to that. It was hold and play, which I think was the two words that you you posted. But uh, I'll if I can pause that. But what's just coming to the surface of my mind here is that because what what you described is um, really simple. It's tangible. Um, it's empowering. Um, it's easy for people to to remember and and work with. But I suppose the thing that's in my mind is. What if you've got a group of people that can't be asked? What if you? What if the if the sea of ocean, i.e., conscientiousness, is not there? How how do you engage people who might be varied but have contributions to a team, but they're doing it on their terms? They're not necessarily doing it by dedication and uh, you know conscientious approach. How how do you? Because because if they if if somebody comes back and says, oh, energy. Yeah, I'm best when I don't work that hard. I rest quite hard or str- or strong. Yeah, that's that's me when you don't bother me or focus. Yeah, I, I know how to focus. You know, what, what if somebody's is fobbing you off or fobbing the team off um, when actually they are trying to avoid perhaps some of the, the harder work? Look, and uh, these things happen, and 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 I would say the fact that these things happen, and and you. Sometimes teams comprise of a lack of conscientiousness. I've been in amongst them. Um, and first, the very first thing I'm saying is all the more reason to do this activity or exercise, leading to my second point, which will be then we need to have better conversation. Then my conversation, I can only speak from my perspective, is with the coaching staff in terms of great. Look what this uh, look look what this uncovers. Okay. Now what we have to do is start having conversations between ourselves in terms of how we collect the appropriate data. You know, that might be just observational behavioral data. That might be actual data from games that demonstrate that these players aren't engaged in these three words. Uh, for for example, um, so it, it it draw it creates better conversations between myself and the coaching staff and the support staff. We can get together, we can brainstorm ways to create conscientiousness around these three words. So we're almost taking a step back and going, well, this is what the team says it wants to do. This is what we created in the room. What we're now starting to uncover is a little bit of withdrawal from from HPM. Actually, a lot of them are down in LPM, or a lot of them don't fully understand uh, or have mythical ideas about how they get into HPM. We need to challenge that, but we don't know that until we've created that. So, so we need to we need to have that. It, it instigates better conversations between us as a coaching unit which then helps us to better challenge players. How we challenge players will depend on the player or players in front of you. So again, that comes full circle back to the first things we were talking about is do we lead with empathy or do we actually lead with a sort of audacious, disagreeable challenge to a player? Again, it will depend on context 
context who that who that player is. Um, you know, there's that famous story that Ancelotti, uh, Carlo Ancelotti wrote about with his, um, with Zinedine Zidane, who was late for the team bus. And I think Ancelotti wanted to leave him behind. And basically a few players, and I'm, I'm butchering this story, but basically a few players said, no, 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 we don't do that, mister. Mister, we've got to let him on the team bus and, and, and he comes with us. And on reflection, he realized this was a person that I had to give more rope to in that respect. And so, so, so there's that. There's one more thing I want to say about this. So you're going to have better conversations, uh, which means you can get to know your, your, your players better. And then I think what it requires and, and the next thing is to strip it back. You do need to find allyship somewhere. And I think in any environment, Steve, you're still going to get the players who you, you can find allyship with. Uh, you're going to get some leaders who do this better than others. And so we strip it back, strip it back, strip it back, get two, three, four of them in a room, right? We are now allies with this. We're going to work on this together. We're going to find another ally and another ally and another ally. We're going to create two pods. You know, can can we create another pod? Can we can can we can we broaden and build from just two, one, two, three, four players? That 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 to me is very powerful because that's what I'm looking for. That any at the beginning of any engagement, can you put me in front of the captain? Does that captain have an ally? Does that ally have another ally? Okay, we've got three people in the room. Now we can start working on HPM with them. If the feeling is we can't put this in the room of the entire team. So I think I think that's how I would look at that challenge. So I'm hearing a little bit of social connection, um, mm-hmm. a, a bit of a sense of responsibility to each other. We're social species. We're going to be wired that way. If we're if we're feeling like we're being backed, or that we have we have comrades that that perhaps we're going to be leaning in and 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 protecting them. We're going to be protecting that principle. Um, what's the excuse? The simplistic question, but what about the sort of selfish, the the the, the self oriented? Uh, personalities. I'm not talking about the sort of low conscientiousness here, but it's just sort of inherently about me. Um, how do you switch that to being more value to the team? And I suppose team players are great, but you're going to have to put up with some people that might be more maverick, but perhaps more self-oriented. Yeah, and I think I want to I want to envelope my answer. And I think you'll, you'd agree and appreciate this, that as we sit here or stand here now, we're talking about this, we're in our living room or our lounge, and it's so easy to talk about this stuff. There's, it's the difference between simple and easy, isn't it? Sorry, it's simple to talk about this stuff. It's not easy to go and execute it because human beings are complex. So anybody listening in will go, oh, that sounds very nice, but it's really difficult to execute in real life. And it damn well is you and I have been in these environments. We know how tough and challenging or tough human challenges are. So, so, but it's a really, really good question. And again, my, my, my first response to that is actually detecting, uh, how that selfishness helps that person 
and therefore helps us and how that selfishness hinders that person and therefore hinders us. Because again, we're going to go back to the note, the nature of personality science, the nature. What are traits for? Traits are there to help human beings get along and get ahead in very simple terms. So they all exist. They are all, uh, they're all fit characteristics, if you like. Being disagreeable. So you're, when you use the term selfish, that to me comes under the umbrella term of trait of uh, disagreeableness or being disagreeable. Well, being disagreeable helps people. This is why I'm often on social media getting wound up about posters that say, be coachable. Well, you know, as well as I do, that some of the, the um, best athletes on the planet are are quite challenging to coach and maybe as they should be because they're demanding of you as a coach and often they know their own mind they know their own body they know their own technique so don't come at me with these people are coachable they're not necessarily so actually disagreeableness can be built into these environments a lot so then it's about trying to detect how this helps them how this hinders them and then we come full circle back well how do i start this conversation it's possibly not going to be me it's probably going to be the head coach so it's upskilling the head coach to be able to have that negotiation and i think it's a negotiation with a lot of these players <laughs> but that negotiation requires the subtle hand or the subtle art of questioning um to to really uncover how they see the world how they see the game how they see their game and then trying to detect the kind of the little cues and clues where you go, oh, I'm not sure about how they're thinking there. I really think I can challenge that one. But then also noticing the kind of things where you can go back and go, I really love what you said there. I appreciate what you're saying. And I understand that's how you see the game. And yep, I'm with you there. Oh, can I reinforce that for you? Can I help you with that at all? You know, how can I be involved there? So it's, I think it's, understanding how selfishness disagreeableness helps us and then reinforcing what how and why it helps us and then finding a way to challenge through through conversation questioning negotiation the selfishness that doesn't help us to help that person as best as you possibly can as a coach to onside that player as best as you can there's always going to be players that are impossible to onside in your given context and sometimes those players just have to leave your coaching culture it's just the reality of it Mm, interesting i think that that um that idea about being coachable i i i think top players top athletes need to be discerning they should be filtering is this valuable to me have I got capacity to take this on as well? And and that's not to say that people have got, you know, unlimited resources to to absorb it, or they should they should be being lazy and uh, or, or less conscientious, less industrious. But a discerning filter of is this really helping me, I think is is absolutely essential for for people to perform at the top level. Um otherwise they become cluttered and unfocused, I think. I love what you said there, and I think it's really well said. And and therefore, I, I almost see what you've said there 
as a check and challenge on what I'm saying about HPM and LPM, for example, because I mosey into the building and go, hey, everybody, HPM, LPM, let's let's break this down. Now, I would always argue, hey, come on, three action-based words, HPM, LPM, that's not too hard, is it? That shouldn't cognitively overload you. But the reality is there are going to be some people in the building who would go, oh, wow, they're, at least their instant response is, that's just too much. And so you're not that that's going to be the person or people that you're not necessarily going to onboard instantly. But I, I, I'm almost giving myself a check and challenge there from what you're saying, because, that, again, let's come back to it's complex. It's in the gray. It's not black and white. There's no such thing as an intervention where you just go in and have an easy ride. You really, really don't. There's no magic dust. Mm. Yeah. OK. Interesting. No, don't, don't, um, don't give it up. I'm going to coach you back <laughs> onto that. I think energy. I mean, my my ad would be energy, strong focus. If those are the three active words that we're going with, as our example, when it matters, and that sense of just you don't have to be necessarily switched on all the time and full on energy, tying your boots up. It 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 could be, you know, in the last minutes of the game, or it could be, and therefore that requires you to be doing this training. To, to have focus when it matters on a penalty spot, for example, but that requiring a certain set of conditions that lead into that. Um, that's my interpretation of making it a little bit more ubiquitous for teams to adopt more wholly, um, as opposed to there are values, we put them on the wall and therefore magic happens, um, that, that sense. Um, look, can I can I pick up on that example that I that I I think if I can try and remember it accurately, I probably should have dug it out before we spoke. But your response to I think it was England versus Italy, um, and I don't know whether th- it, there was truth behind the words of I think you've got you've got one all extra time, and England were talking about holding. Uh, or it might have been one nil to England actually in holding, yep. and Italy had a word which was play, and I suppose that active, that passive word, the the hold part felt like it was an inhibitory, like let, let's let's just cope as opposed to let's be active and do what we're doing best. Now. Perhaps you can clarify as to whether there was any accuracy behind the sort of origin of that, but it really was illuminating for me about what potentially could be triggers or what a coach might need to be amplifying and and reinforcing for players to be focusing on under the pressure of a final or or the heat of an arena. Um, Conscious that you also enveloped earlier of saying this is easier to chat about, but harder to do. And that's true. Um, but please, if you could, if you could lean into that topic and, and just help me a little bit with it. It's a topic I, I love to talk about. And I, I'm going to open my answer by saying I am not that they'd care whether I'm a fan or not, but I just think the work done by the English FA is absolute. that there are, there are, they're silently drifting into just 
being the most outstanding performance organization i don't want to, that sounds over the top but it, uh, what they're doing is just absolutely fantastic and they're, they're helping they're doing exactly what they wanted to do which was to help england go deep into tournaments you know i said this about the women's world cup I, they lost okay but spain were brilliant but wow deep in tournaments they've won one there on the women's side on the men's side semi-finals quarterfinals and so on so so look please and there's brilliant people not least two incredible sports psychs behind them doing great work with open-minded coaches who are working with them incredible team i i i and 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 so simple and easy simple to talk about not easy to do I think the Italy-England final was so, so interesting because it was just this archetypal case study of uh, uh, avoidance behaviour, um, going into behavioural inhibition, if you like. There's this iconic 20th century, um, he passed away, at, I think it was about 2007, uh, Jeffrey Gray. Um, who was a, a psychologist, uh, known to be a polymath in as much as just an expert on so many different areas, topics, um, but wonderful psychologist who uh, spent much of his career dedicated to um, studying what he described as the biological basis of personality. Stunningly simple terms because Steve, I've nowhere near knowledgeable enough or intelligent enough to go hugely deep into this but in in simple terms um it's, it's the brain will work in two ways uh away or towards uh to to approach or to avoid um so, towards uh rewards away from punishment essentially uh, his two terms are behavioral activation system and behavioral inhibition system if we think of behavioral inhibition as a hesitancy and an inhibition. It's inhibited. Rather than a positive intent, rather than a positive intent, it's an inhibition. We've become a little bit more hesitant in our execution of actions and our anticipation and decision-making. Maybe our anticipation and decision-making suffers because our awareness closes off slightly. Uh, our environmental awareness, anticipation slows, decision-making suffers. Maybe the front part of our brain closes down slightly. That is not absolutely how it happens, but but go with that. The, our capacity to access um, maybe the performance plan isn't as good as it should be. That's, that's behavioural inhibition. And in, in essence, it's that classic fight-flight, you know, and, and freeze, fight-flight-freeze. You know, just this switches off because it's run away. Okay. Hesitancy, inhibition, inhibition, hesitancy. Now, interestingly, in that final, the technical report from FIFA, and I can tell you that David Moyes was a part of that technical uh, report. Ator Karanka, the former Middlesbrough manager, wonderful, wonderful coach, was part of that technical uh, report and in that technical the report they talked about the shift in possession um the uh, deep lying english um uh shape 
uh, talking slightly over my head here because this is football coach stuff. So um, they they talked about maybe the lack of a, uh, of effective challenges from or lack of challenge. I think it was Gareth Southgate himself said something crazy like we didn't. It was something like we didn't commit a foul for fifty or sixty minutes, which isn't necessarily a demonstration mm. of um, a wonderful, wonderfully timed tackles. It's just a demonstration of don't mess up here, hesitancy and inhibition. I believe that was the stat. I may have butchered it, so I apologise if I have. We started to play. I, in my terms, I would say we started to play back foot rather than front foot. This was after about we went one nil up after about three or four minutes, and from about the twentieth minute, it was just all Italy. Um, we played back foot rather than front foot with fear rather than with freedom. Arguably, we started to play not to lose rather than on the front foot to to win. It was those kind of mindset shifts, in my opinion. And I think behaviorally we saw this. So is that a team that is incapable of executing said tactics or strategy? Or is this a team that is engaged in certain individuals and potentially collectively in inhibition, in hesitancy? I think it's that. I think it's the latter. Now, this if I may, and I don't, we won't dwell on this because we've talked about this, but this is where I think the day-to-day language combined, the day-to-day narrative combined with the specific objectives that are um, are placed uh, uh, as important for players is vital. And that's why I think it's so vital that bringing in this, these terms, for example, and I'm not saying they're the only terms, HPMLPM. If the language becomes, we play HPM no matter what. Now, let's be clear. I can strategically or tactically play conservatively. I can have a team shape that lines up in a conservative manner, defensively, if you like, but still play HPM, still play on the front foot. Just as a like a golfer, I can aim for the middle of the green but execute my swing with a cocky confidence. I can execute a committed swing, but aim for the middle of the green. And we can go on to England cricket here if you want to talk about that, because I wrote articles on this as well. The the potential conflict, and I, again, amazing stuff, but again, the potential conflation between mindset and strategy. Um, I can I can make a forward defense, but I can do so with a positive intent, right? So strategically, I can play conservatively, but still be an HPM. So for me, you have to siphon mindset while understanding mindset is going to be impacting and influencing all the other components. But siphon mindset and say, we have to know what our HPM is. We have to. And if we take those three words of energy, strong, focused, you could potentially put up a strong argument that England against Italy from the 20th minute onwards weren't with energy strong and focused and that's not to criticize anybody whatsoever because when you get in there that is damn hard to do Mm. you know and I've drowned amidst all of that you know in certain consultancy positions irrespective of feeling like I have the answers because you're dealing with 25 players, if you're talking about a football squad, in front of you. And it's complex. But behavioural activation to me is what one needs in the shape of, let's say, HPM, in the shape of individual 
and a team mental framework. I think that is vital. Hmm. And just to be clear there, it's not about England per se, or it's not about Italy per se. It's about the scenario. It's about a, a, a gazillion number of scenarios where you might be leading and you want to retain that lead, or you might be behind and you want to go and get something. Um, or that you're drawing and that might be good enough. Um, and so what's, what's fascinating there is, is, is whether that is something that actually you could intervene and observe that spiral happening or that inhibition creeping in and do something about it in order to, to try and change the narrative, to change the tone to change the focus, to get people leaning in, or whether that is something, and it could be a both here, that that you need to play out as a scenario, that you choose your decisions beforehand of this scenario, and therefore this is our, this is, you know, we're we're choosing our witty remarks (laughs) beforehand, as Churchill would say, you know, finding, finding that out before the pressure comes, practicing it, reinforcing it, so that it becomes more natural and a default position rather than a response. And, and, and to play on what you're saying, this is the interesting juxtaposition, is that I suppose the traditional form of striving to change in the moment is a tactical change, which absolutely works, you know, because you're changing a tactic, you're changing behaviors, you're changing the lens of the world of your players in that moment. So, of course, that can work. My argument is that the you, if as an organization, a club, a team, you make a decision to bias the narrative towards our job on the pitch is to execute the game plan, the game model in our HPM, our high performance mindset as individuals and as a team. And that narrative runs through everything, activities, sessions, mini conversations in the medical department, and so on and so forth, individual meetings, player development programs, uh, individual frameworks for match day. If it runs through everything, then I think you have a greater chance of creating individual brains, and I suppose a collective brain, but individual brains that predict are more along the lines of when we when we meet adversity, then we respond in this manner. You're creating that blueprint. There is something about to come back. I've got a couple more things to say. There's something about defending a lead, for example, that taps into behavioral inhibition, that takes you away from positive intent. It, I mean, riffing on an idea, hypothesizing something, it could be an evolutionary thing, that if I, as caveman, have to uh, uh caveman or cave woman have to protect my family in the cave you know i am going to be a, a little bit more hesitant about what i'm going to do think a bit more which isn't necessarily what we require when the saber-toothed tiger is lurking outside and therefore might not um you know respond accordingly or appropriately so there's something about protecting something that mm-hmm. might cause us to, to 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 find um inhibition i think the final thing to say there this is where i always riff on the idea of manchester let's take manchester city right now if we're talking about football soccer manchester city 
are Manchester City, not just because they are a team full of amazing players, but they are Manchester City because everybody else perceives them to be Manchester City. And so subsequently, it inhibits players prior to playing, which then taps into this inhibition on game day. I think there is, in my experience, there's some truth to that. And my experience of working in medical departments, listening to language, listening to the conversations, listening to the meaning, the meaning making that is going on. Hey, we're playing Chelsea at the weekend. Oh, we never beat them. Oh, we always do well uh, against them. Oh, they've got that. This is happening at the moment. I'm not saying that. Nothing unidimensional. I'm not saying that's the only thing. Performance is multidimensional. That is an interesting mediator of mindset come game day. So I think, yeah, I think it's an interesting landscape. And and so, and I've got got a further sort of follow up question Mm. to what you've just described. But that last point was quite quite interesting. Do you think that needs to be nipped in the bud? Do you think that needs to be managed in terms of just hey, look, you know, let's 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 give ourselves a chance here. Let's let's start to t- have a different conversation about what could be, what might be, or that if they are so dominant, then what? Why not play with more freedom? You know, to 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 try things out, to take risks. If the if the if the if the game and the result is always a foregone conclusion, let's learn from it. You know, is there a different? What's the opportunity there that that should be happening rather than these these little sloppy that's my word, not yours uh, conversations creating the the narrative before the performance has happened? Yes, for everything you said, in in as much as I I would love players to be more um, thoughtful around their language and the feeling the. Uh, um, the emotional temperature, the emotional contain, or well, the emotional ten- the temperature that creates contag- contagion around the organisation, the feeling of the organisation, but how that is so often driven by language. Um, now, obviously, it would be slightly finicky to try to pick people up on the point here, a point there, something said, and you know, it would be quite. Uh, um, um, I suppose top-down command style. If you walked around the the training ground, for example, and and picked up, policed everybody into speaking a certain way, but just um, striving to have the kind of conversations where you, you you try to check and challenge. You know, what kind of conversations are you having with yourself today about our game at the weekend? What conversations are you having with others? And then, if we have the right framework in place at you know within the 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 team or the organization then we can refer back to that i can't wait to play chelsea at the weekend i can't play what wait to play city at the weekend i can't wait for this qualifying at the weekend it's going to be so much fun being in our high performance mindset it's going to be joyful Oh, awesome. Now we're bringing in a bit of positive psychology now it's sort of shifting meaning around let's gratitude you know, wow, wow, we're playing City at the weekend. What a great opportunity, as you say, to play with freedom, to take some risks, to open up a little bit, to execute the responsibilities in my role to the very best of my ability. I can't wait here. That's going to be awesome. Again, that's not going to guarantee a great game, a great game for an individual or for a team at the weekend. But I would argue 
it, it gives you a better chance. It manages emotional temperature individually and across the team and, and across the team, the emotional contagion. I, I think that's a fascinating area for coaches to really think about a thought experiment around that together and to dive in on how do you impact that? Mm. Fascinating. And you mentioned it as the sort of top of Everest in that sense of having resourceful players ultimately that, that are, that are managing that are intuitive, that are interpreting scenarios, that are socially adept and aware, but then creating agents of change, that they are making the changes that are necessary or or that you, you're um, – where in the development of a player is that is that best developed or created or supported? Where, where, how could you – how could you – if you were to sort of think utopian – version of sports psychology that that you're intervening and helping people at a certain point where's that where's the future direction here your textbook answer here is you know at, at younger age group levels uh where you can um, infiltrate your activities in your sessions with psychosocial skills you know your leadership your teamwork um you know striving to um, be as autonomy supportive as you can possibly be. And I think there's a lot of, um, you know, I, I think as sports psychologists, we talk a lot about the importance of autonomy supportive coaching. And I think there's some, uh, overzealous, um, um, comments made sometimes or, or approaches being suggested. Um, I, I think, you know, sport is, sport does need to be educational. By that, I mean every sport has its, its, uh, principles, its rules, its guidelines. It's probably optimal technical, uh, movements, although that's a, an area of debate. Of course, we have to teach sports. I, I firmly and strongly believe that. Uh, and and so uh, an array of teaching strategies, coaching strategies, if you like, really, really important, but blended in within those coaching strategies, strategies, those teaching strategies has to be opportunities for young people to learn how to lead, to learn how to uh, team, whether that's holding each other accountable. Uh, for, for example, just engaging them in peer-to-peer um, uh, coaching, you know, giving them an opportunity to coach each other, giving them an opportunity to organize game day to a degree. Uh, I, I do think if, again, very basic thing to say here, uh, and I, I, I'm going to bastardize the truth, but let's go with it, a continuum from coach-led to in the middle, player-centered to at the end, player-driven. Again, you know, your coaching uh, uh, educators and developers would scold me for that continuum. But but es- essentially, if we can give players experiences up and down that continuum, where maybe we have to coach them command style at time or assign tasks to them within the boundaries of deliberate practice. But at the same time, from a, 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 a player a centered perspective, we might start to ask the kind of divergent and convergent questions that helps them think about the answers, that gives them an opportunity to brainstorm the actions that they have to engage in, right the way down to player driven, where maybe they're setting the tone for certain practices, certain activities and, and, and arrangements and so on and so forth. So this blend of coaching styles, teaching styles is so, so important. Uh, and, and making sure that we understand that the, 
that is helping us to help young people engage in these psychosocial skills. But we can't be scared of it at first team level, Steve. And I think, again, in the environments I've been in, not all the time, but often, perhaps the lens of the world is, we're about these game models and we've just got to teach the game model and we've just got to help players sustain or maintain their skills. And I think there are so many, again, another little thing that I play with as a sports psychologist is saying, if you as coaches believe yourselves to be sports psychologists or you and truth being that you are psychologists on the grass, great. So be the psychologist. So how do we help these players get better at being leaders? Not just here's an armband, but really how do we help them be better leaders? Well, there's got to be protocols in practices, whether whether it's as simplistic as we're, you know, we get them in a huddle and they're communicating together more and we facilitate on the outside, or whether it's actually taking that that whiteboard out there and getting the players to do some brainstorming here again leaders how do we help them be better leaders if they're not educated consumers of this stuff how do we help them be better teammates if they're not experiencing teamwork monday tuesday thursday friday going into the weekend we've got to inject that into our coaching practices not it's got to start at youth level which it does so much in so many good academies and so many great talent development pathways but it's got to continue into the developmental phase at 18s to 23s into the the the, the first teams the elite development programs yeah, passionate passionate campaign for that i'm wondering <laughs> whether that that sort of i know this is we're getting into sort of idealistic territory here but mm. I guess the more and more environments I've I've worked in, the more I see that actually the top jobs, CEOs, technical directors, uh, the, the C-suite, they actually probably could do with some of the the at least the literacy about yeah. what's going on psychologically for people, so that they're better able to support it, because that sort of environmental aspect. It's, it's very hard for staff in a business, for players to drive that if it's being suppressed, um, inhibited, um, undermined by the top. Um, is that, is, is that an, an area that you can sort of see as an opportunity to, to further improve at least the conversation about how are we going to approach our performance? Um, in the future, uh, and I think I'm going to try and answer this way that doesn't belittle or insult anybody. I think that in sport, sometimes the people who might be um, uh, at, at the at the uh, business level, let's just just call it that, who are driving, doing incredible work, in, you know, at front front office. Um, I, I think for me, where I've tried to make an impact, if I don't have access there, is to have good conversations with the head coach stroke manager to be able to lead upwards as well as lead downwards 
And I think actually it's a really interesting question you're posing there because I think this is crucial for sustaining great cultures and sustaining your job as a head coach or manager. Mm. Because if you sustain your job as a head coach or manager, then you have more consistency of culture. And so subsequently the organization itself might be more successful over the mid to long term. But I think what can happen is that if you don't have a clear idea or plan as a head coach or manager, then it's very uh, around, let's call it psychosocial or biopsychosocial, but the psychosocial, the psychological side, the, the social environment, the cultural, and so on and so forth. That if you don't have a real clear plan, then it's very difficult to articulate upwards. But if you have that clear plan, you can articulate it upwards. And if you can articulate it upwards and you can give demonstrations of when you're helping your your, your team of people, staff and, and players, engage in these psychosocial practices, that you're working on these uh, these these people of yours from a, 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 a human performance perspective, I actually think that lends itself towards those, the CEO, the CEO, the, the CFO, and so on and so forth, so forth, and board of directors understanding what you are trying to do, the breadth and the depth of what you're trying to do, and that it's not just, I'm not going to say that they think you're just kicking a ball around, but it's not just tech-tack, for example, and physical, but it's, it's broader there, and that makes it more meaningful. I'm not suggesting for one second that suddenly everybody keeps their job because people will always lose their job in this profession. That's just the nature of it. But maybe it 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 it, it um, bulletproofs you a little bit more if you're able to articulate that side of things upwards. So that's that is definitely the first answer to that. And if anybody at that boardroom wants to kind of understand, okay, here's this plan, but you know what does this look like at granular detail? I just think that's so so important uh, for, for for clubs because if the guys that the 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 people excuse me at the top have a better appreciation of what that looks like um then i think that they feel more empowered to sustain that culture for a longer term irrespective of the outcomes that the organization is experiencing and it feels like an opportunity as much as anything because every every company every team will have an environment that you could describe in some way everyone will have a culture whether that's good or bad and to have a progressive performance environment and culture feels like it has to be informed by how we work how we behave how, what what are the principles that guide us um so yeah it feels like that's another real opportunity for for people to explore at least um in performance environments which i think sometimes can get a little bit too wrapped up in results as opposed to uh, review and reflection about process how do we get on what's the result what's the outcome what's the bottom line rather than actually how do we perform uh, and a review of that yeah and as you're speaking there it makes me you, you've triggered my thought here into i'll try and articulate this in the best way i can let's imagine that 
I'm brought in to an organization and the first things I'm doing with a head coach or manager is helping them create a psychologically informed environment. A psychologically informed environment, a pie. Pie being that, you know, we want to take into account the thoughts, the feelings, the experiences and the personalities of the players in front of us, of the people in front of us. And at boardroom, they're going, well, to, to head coach, well, why, why should I actually uh, fund this? You know, come on really do we need to they you know we need to win games well now we can start now we can start explaining that pie and why that's important why that's important for well-being and mental health why that's important for decisions around coaching process within coaching practice and then hey steve we can then maybe even link this back into hpm with our three fantastic words that we're working on energy strong and focused because we're saying well if we've got this pie and we take a very sophisticated approach to our people challenges we take into account the experiences the day-to-day experiences our people have we take into account mental health practices this is part of our pie and those mental health practices and the well-being processes we've got in place and the fact that we 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 dig a little deep, bit deeper about the experiences of our people that feeds into energy strong strength and focused that feeds into our hpm because we know if you know if johnny or mary over there if um if we're not careful um around you know the pressure that that's put on them we know historically that they have uh, they experience some mental ill health we've got to, we've got to be mindful of that but what we know is when we do that well with that person when we negotiate the right solutions with them which might be that they might not come in on a tuesday for that activity there we might go to that at length what we know is we'll get at the weekend Johnny or Mary engaging in energy, strong focus, being in their HPM. Because what we know now are, you know, biopsychosocial factors make the uh, might make performance a much more subtle craft than simply wham bam, thank you, ma'am. We're just going to go there and win. You know, we're just going to go there and you know send it basically it's a little bit more a little bit more to it than that so i do wonder listening to what you were saying there is if you know it it affords us the opportunity to communicate the message upwards around the granularity of engagement learning and performance love it love it i thought rather than rather than biological psychological sociological I thought you, when you said make, make a more subtle performance, I thought you were going to say make the world go round. Um, <laughs> just, uh, Careful, it's, yeah. that's, that's what it's all about, baby. <laughs> hey, look, it's been brilliant talking to you. Fascinating. I love the, the flow of thoughts that you create. Um, it's been long overdue and, um, listening to you today and unpack some, some technical concepts, but make them tangible, but make them, that make them realistic too. Um, it's been a real privilege to listen to you. So it's no wonder that the sports psych show is as popular as it is. So Dan, I just want to say thanks for, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Steve. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Now, we've got plenty more to come. So if you'd like to support and champion us, then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you tune in. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. All the links are in the show notes. So in the meantime, have a great week. Thank you.